All right, let's jump in the Gospel of Matthew, or if anybody has anything you want to give away where you've been that just stood out to you, that just encouraged you, could be somewhere else you're reading, anywhere. We, that's what we gather together to be able to look into the, the Word of God and to hear from the people of God the testimonies of God's goodness and His faithfulness and trustworthiness of bringing us through. We had the opportunity when we had the kids with us. Stephanie bought them uh, these little uh, building block type thing that uh, they look like stones that you can kind of build on one another. And we got to talking with them about Ebenezer's and what Ebenezer's are, those stones of remembrance of God's faithfulness that when God would do something significant in the life of his people, he would tell them at different times, not every time, but he set a pattern for them to erect these stones of remembrance. They were not to be worshipped. They were, they were to call them to remembrance of God's goodness and his faithfulness that if he brought us through this, he's going to be faithful to bring us through the next thing and the next thing. And it's just those testimonies. And that's what our hymns are. They're songs of deliverance. They're the testimonies of the righteous, and they bring glory uh, to him. So the kids had a good time uh, when they wasn't fighting over who was knocking over whose stones, you know. One would get them built up, and one would tump, hit the table, uh, and they would topple over, and then it would be World War Five, and then another one would have theirs about halfway up, and another one would would get excited and bump the table and they would collapse and we had to spread them out miss barbara look you do yours over here we let the girls do theirs over there nate had to be isolated and uh because his kept falling and it was always one of them girls fault you know and uh so yeah it was fun and uh and challenging at the same time but anybody Very similar, very similar. Tell me something that you, which you picked up on. Well, just a lot of things in here that, you know, I get up and I read it in the morning mm -hmm. and I think, wow, he hit the nail on the head. Now he does, doesn't he? I mean, he always does. That's yeah. Because we're, what are we dealing with? We're dealing with a message that God wrote to reveal himself to us and to reveal how he works in the midst of circumstances and that we can count on him and trust him that he is at work right now and he is bringing all things together according to his uh, glory and his purpose. We, we see that. He tells us, like in Matthew 10. Y'all read Matthew 10? Was that in yesterday's reading? Yes. Matthew 10. Obviously, that was for them at that particular time of what he was doing when he sent them out temporarily. Because this was a temporary thing he was sending them out to do. But this temporary assignment had implications that would last and endure because he speaks about things that couldn't happen yeah. with them right then. Right. When he speaks about future kings and the Gentiles and all those that would come up because he told them, don't go into the way of the, the Gentiles. Don't go into Samaria, but you are sheep looking for lost sheep. Sheep looking for sheep. That's what he said, right? Yeah. Sheep looking for sheep. Look at Matthew 10. Matthew 10, tremendous uh, truths for, for us to ponder 
Now, in, in looking at that, you have to think about when Jesus, when Jesus would teach his people, Jesus never just taught his disciples and sent them out in something that he didn't demonstrate himself. That he didn't give insight and instruction on himself. They have been watching him. When you read in chapter 8 and chapter 9, what do we see? We see demonstrations of the power of God upon him. Before we get into chapter 10, just look back if you would. And let's just look at a couple passages of scripture that I, I was noticing from chapter 8 up to this point, I had, I had put a note in, in my scripture at some point, demonstrations of power. Because everything that he gives them authority and power to deal with, he has been dealing with himself up to this point. When he launched them out, they had been with him, they had experienced these things. And they had watched him work. And we see in the very beginning, we, we see in chapter number eight, when he's dealing with leprosy. Was there a cure for leprosy? Back then, no. No cure. But he had power over the incurable disease. Was there any cure for sin? No. There's only one solution for sin, right? Amen. And that, that was Jesus. So when you look at the leper, the leper always is a, is a representation of the sinner who couldn't, who couldn't cleanse himself, who couldn't heal himself, who, who was isolated from society, just like how sin isolates us from God and this separation. And it says in verse one, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him and behold, a leper came and worshiped him saying, Lord, if you are willing you can make me clean. Now just think about that. A leper couldn't, a leper couldn't do this under the law, could he? No. But boy, he could, he could get close to Jesus, huh? Yeah. And Jesus would touch the leper. He would transform the leper. The leper couldn't do anything for himself, but Jesus had power. And the scripture says in verse three, then Jesus put out his hand and he touched him and he said, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed immediately. Something that they learned how to do, something that we know how to do, is that every every interval of Jesus touching these people's lives, whether it be in an incurable disease, whether he was interrupting somebody's lives, they had learned how to manage these things. But none of them were able to cure them and stop them. And he had the power to transform what they could only manage. And now he, and when we get up to chapter 10, we're going to see now he sends them out to do exactly what he had been doing himself, that they'd been walking uh, with him to do. Look, if you would, in uh, verse number 14 of chapter number 8. What is fever to the body? Fever is what? A defense mechanism that the body creates. It's an indicator that something is off. Something is not right with the way we've been designed and made. Now the thing is, fever out of control will kill you before the disease kills you. And so he deals with the indicators. No different than the indicators of a disturbed spirit. Uh, shame and guilt, that'll drive a man down 
as far as even him in transgression. See, all these are indicators that something ain't right, that I'm not right with God. These guilt, shame, all that kind of stuff. You get around people on the job and out in the community and you watch when somebody is bearing the burden of shame and ungraced guilt. I mean, it will eat them alive. Yes. It'll eat their relationships alive. They have trouble with people and and trouble with, with, with circumstance, it affects them mentally, it affects them emotionally, it affects them physically. I mean, their bodies will start breaking down on them. These are all indicators that it's just something's not right. But you know, Jesus had the power over that, didn't he? What does it say? When he came to Peter's house, his mother-in-law, had, she was sick. Obviously, something was going on with her, but the emphasis is on what? Fever. The fever. Verse 15, so he touched her hand and the fever did what? It left her and she arose and served him. Fever is an indicator that is something ain't right, but fever unchecked will kill you. I mean, people have died throughout time because of fever. Fever is what killed them, although the fever was a, was a symptom of a problem. But it was the fever that they couldn't get under control. Then we see in verse 16 only have the power over infirmities. Infirmities. Look in verse 16. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were what? Demon possessed. And he cast out spirits with a word and he healed all who were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. These infirmities, he had power. Remember, they learned how to manage them. But he had the power to stop them. He had the power to change it. Then we see, uh, you jump down to verse number 23. He had the power over, over inclement weather, over the elements. Uh, we see the raging storm in the sea, and he spoke to it, and what happened? It calmed. It, it calmed. It calmed. See, men managed these things, but had no power to stop them. We manage through the storms, but we can't stop the storms. We can't stop the winds. As, as Martin asked about this, this tropical depression that's running up the coast, ain't no man have power to stop it. We can manage through it, but Jesus was able to Stop it. Just like he's able to, to transform us in what we can't even do for ourselves. And as you get into chapter 9, you get into chapter 9, he had the power to interrupt life and death. Power to interrupt both life and death. Here's a man, he's paralyzed, he can't maneuver, and he, he deals with it. You deal with uh, the... The one he raised from the dead that was sick and done died, what did he do? He interrupted death, brought her back to life. He has the power to do that. He has the power to open our eyes. Verse 27, the blind men came to him and they followed and said, Son of David, have mercy on us. He opened that. They learned how to manage that. They, was, they managed being blind. Then you get into verse 32. He had the power to open the mouths. The mute man who was demon possessed. He had power over that. And then you get into chapter number 10. Chapter number 10 is we can't forget that Jesus just demonstrated to them 
that he had the power to overcome these things. Now he's releasing that power unto them. Amen. And the very things that he took these men from all walks of life, you had tax collectors, you had fishermen, you had publicans, and you had tax collectors and fishermen and people from every kind of background that he chose and sent out. And one gospel tells us he sent them out two by two. Matthew doesn't tell us that, but we know from Mark and Luke's gospel that he did send them out two by two. Verse number five, then the 12, these 12 that Jesus sent out, which is the idea of his apostles, that's what an apostle is, one sent, commissioned by Jesus, sent with a message, and there's that, that word, he commanded them. In that command is, was their authority, Amen. was their power was their right to do what he sent them to do. And he said, number one, do not go into the way of the Gentiles. It wasn't timing for that yet. And do not enter into the city of the Samaritans. It wasn't time for them yet. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we see sheep going to sheep. These were sheep. These disciples sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Go find my sheep. Verse 7 and as you go, what do you do? You preach. You proclaim, saying the kingdom of heaven is at what? Is at hand. Now we go preach, the king has died. The king has been resurrected. They were preaching the kingdom is at hand. We go preach that Jesus has come. Jesus has lived. Jesus has died. Jesus has overcome the grave. He's been resurrected. We go preach the blood of Jesus. Amen. They was preaching the kingdom had come, invaded this earth. He was at hand and that it was coming. Just like remember when, who was it that was preaching a message and he only had a partial message. Y'all remember his name? What was that guy in Acts that only had the message of, of John the Baptist? Y'all remember his name? They said, have you heard about the Holy Spirit? And he said, I don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. So, huh? Apollos took him aside and explained to him more thoroughly that you were accurate in everything you was preaching. But we're going to tell you the rest of the story. Amen. What John proclaimed and what John fulfilled and prepared the way for, he came. He lived. He shed his blood. He overcome the grave. Amen. And he's alive. And he sent forth his spirit to empower us to be his witnesses upon the earth. And the scripture says Apollos took that message and he ran with it. He, 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 just, he, he only had a limited word yeah. of what he had. But boy, what he had, he was preaching. Right. And God gave him the rest of the message. Amen. And that's really the, the, the commission that God gives us, the same thing. He said, look, in you going, when you go, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them those things which I commanded you, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age or the end of the world. He said, so you're going to be going in everyday life. As you go, make this the priority of your life. Sharing the message of the king. Amen. 
So he sends them. He says, go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 8, no different than what they just watched him do. What did Jesus do? He healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. Is, is that exactly what they've been watching and seeing and hearing him do? Amen. He demonstrated for them, just like he's going to do for you and me. He's not going to send us out to do something that he is that he's not actively doing. We don't have to worry about that. We're not going in new territory that ain't never been done. He demonstrates that for us. He says, freely you have received and freely you what? Give. You give. Verse number nine, he says, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts. The idea is don't provide any extra in that. Don't, don't go with extra bags and extra tunics and extra sandals and extra staffs for a worker is worthy of his food. Got to meet the need when you need it as you go, doing what I sent you to do. Now, we're going to see later on when he sends them out, he tells them it's okay to take those things. Yes. You, can take, you can take extra. What would, why, why do you think the first time he sent his disciples out, why did he not let them or he told them not to take any extra resources or any extra clothes or any extra thing. Why do you think he told them the first time he sent them out? What what would be the reasoning behind he didn't that? The thing is, what was that, Greg? He would meet the need as they went and they would not put any confidence in the fact that they had extra. They could rely on the extra. He didn't want them to rely on the extra. He wanted them to depend on him meeting their needs where they were at through his people. And that's exactly what they, what he did. Now, when they went out the next time, he didn't forbid that. He told them they could take it. Why? They've already learned the lesson. They didn't need it. But it would be a tool that they could use and that they could pass on and they could share with others as God would pr provide and meet those needs. But they wouldn't be dependent on those things. They could fully trust him because he's already proven it. He's already raised an Ebenezer for them, that they can trust him on that. So he says in verse number 11, Now whatever city or town you enter in, inquire or ask who in the town or the city is worthy and stay until you go out. And when you go into that household, greet it. And if the household is worthy... Let your peace come upon it, but if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you, and whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from the house or the city, shake the dust off your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day or in the day of judgment than for that city. So he told them to do a couple things. Number one, when you go to a place, ask. Who in the city is there as representations of God? Who, who is worthy or fit? Who is servants of God in this city? Ask, inquire, get, get the feel of the city. Who are people going to recommend for, that, that are servants of God? Number two, he said, but just don't take their word for it. When you go, let them affirm that they are fit and worthy 
Let them affirm. And if your peace returns to you, what do you do? You find, you find another place. You find another place. And he says, but you ask, you affirm, and then you abide in the same place. Don't go from place to place. Don't go from house to house. Stay in the same place wherever you go. Because there's always the likelihood, if you're not careful, if you're in this place and you're there for a little bit and somebody comes along, Brother Shannon, and they say, won't you come over to my house? I got a little better. I got a little AC over at my place. And boy, that AC has a little appeal to it. And somebody else says, won't you come to mine? I got a washer and a dryer. Somebody says, come over to my house, man. I got a chef living here and they cook some pretty good ribeyes. And before you know it, you want to go to some other place and things, the accommodations start having more appeal to you than the assignment that you've been given and the people you've been given the love and minister to. Are you with me? So he said, wherever you go, you stay in that place. There may be better places to stay, you find out. It's not about what's better or what's worse. You abide upon the place that is affirmed that my peace rests upon, and that's where you serve from. And when you leave that city, you do the same thing in the next city you go to, and you go preach the good news to them. It's just important for us because there's always going to be something that could be worse or something that could be better or, or when it comes to accommodation-wise. There's always going to be a, a bigger or a smaller place, but he said, whatever the first place you come to that my spirit rests on, that these people are worthy of this commission that I've sent you on, that's where you stop, that's where you stay, that's where you work from while you're there. And don't let any of those extra things have, have a draw to you. You just do what I've asked you to do. I think that that's fundamentally important for us because all of us in our flesh can be drawn to sweeter accommodations. Are you with me? And, and that, that wouldn't set over well. doesn't preach a good message to those that you go into uh, minister to. And also we see in this that it's obvious that there are degrees of judgment that are yet to come. Because he said that in that case, because the kingdom of heaven was at hand, it wasn't at hand in Sodom and Gomorrah. It is at hand now. And men will be held more accountable for their response to you than the judgment that even fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. And even though they had judgment fall upon them, and though that, that city and those residents that didn't know God will be will have to deal with that separation and punishment for an all eternity, those that reject you as my messengers, as my ambassadors, will have a more severe judgment in eternity than even they for simply rejecting my messengers at this time. Amen. So there's, there's degrees, there's levels that we see there. Verse number 16, Behold, I send you out a sheep, as sheep in the midst of wolves. So that means what? What does a wolf want to do to a sheep? What can a sheep do? Does a sheep have any kind of defensive measures against a wolf? The only defensive measure a sheep has is the voice of a shepherd. 
That, that, that's the only thing. It, it, the shepherd is his defense. That's where the shepherd with his staff and his rod and he's listening when he, the shepherd protects the sheep. The sheep can't protect himself. So the message is, is, is we following the voice of our shepherd because we're entering into a world that we cannot overcome nor deal with as sheep among wolves if we get outside of hearing the voice of our shepherd and following his lead. That, that is fundamental for us that we have to remember that. And Jesus tells us that. He is our shepherd, right? Isn't he our shepherd? He's the good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. And we can, we can trust him and cling to him. He says, as a result, we need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Let's talk about that for a moment. Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. What do you think he's meaning there? How does he pull that out? Let us be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Well, a serpent either runs away when he hears you or he hides. He keeps his head down. Or he what? But we're not supposed to bite, right? <laughs> But a serpent is cunning. Well, a serpent is, is skillful, and a serpent knows what to do. If you watch a serpent, for an example, when it comes to its prey, say a bite, a serpent is, is, is very, um, one, they, they are strategic in how they attack their prey. They know when to strike. They don't waste their strikes, put it that way. They wait for that mouse or whatever it is, that lizard that comes up. And they very still, they know when they have a skill and they'll strike that, that, that mouse and they'll, they'll let the mouse go because they know what? Their poison is going to do the work to it. It's going to neutralize it. And they'll follow the mouse as the mouse goes away. They'll, they'll let it roll, go and then they'll follow it and the mouse, they're going to, they got a meal there or whatever it is. But a serpent will warn you. It really doesn't want to get you. It, it, it get a mouse or something like that. But a serpent is skillful in the sense that it, it knows what to do. And I think that's the idea. No, we, we, we wise as a serpent is saying you've got a skill to know how, you know when, and you know what to say in a matter. Let God give you that wisdom. At the same time, you're to be as harmless as a dove. What, 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 does that, what does that speak of? Harmless as a dove. Innocent. In Non-threatening. Is a dove, does a dove present any threat? So not only do we know what and when and how to say a thing, but we say it without any threat. We say it with a sense of gentleness. So we're not striking like a serpent would. We just have a, a skill to know when to do, when to say something, and how to say it, and why we saying it, but we do it with no threat. We do it with no harm and gentleness, and we calming. You think about a dove. Isn't a dove uh, the representation of something that is a, a peace, it's calming? So we bring a calming presence to a situation because there is no threat 
with us when we talked, like Brother Shannon said, he talked with those young men and they shared some prayer requests with him and they talked for 20 minutes. They wasn't threatened by him. So they was willing to share with him. And Brother Shannon was trying to be as wise as a serpent to hear what they were saying, listening to what they had to say, to know how to say something back to them in the right spirit uh, in a way that can have an effect upon them. And that, that's a balance there. And that's what Jesus, Jesus took two uh, things as, as opposite as they are and said, look, we need to learn balance here and how to be keen and non-threatening in what I've called you to do, just to be a non-harmless, peaceable and common to help somebody. He says, verse 17, but even though you have a keenness, you wise, you're non-threatening, that conjunction, right? Isn't that a conjunction? Verse 17, but beware of men for that they will deliver you up to their councils. They will scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before what? Governors and kings. See, now we're talking about something that goes beyond just that time. Just them. This is a prolonged because this, this is involving us now. Not just what they were doing, but now we learn from what they were doing because he's talking about something that goes beyond. And we're getting into the time frames when Peter and Paul and Barnabas and them would travel the seas and they would go to places like Rome and, and, and other parts of the world spreading the gospel and they would be they would face governors and they would face kings and they would face magistrates and they would be put in prisons and they would be in jail for a period of time and, and those types of things. And, and it leads up to even us where he says, look, verse 18, you'll be brought before governors and kings for my name's sake as a testimony to them and who? Now, he told them initially, don't go into the way of the Gentiles. So now we know that he this is going to carry out much further than what they were going to do on that temporary brief mission that they just were assigned. This is going to be a message that carries on even for us in our day. Verse 20, for it is not to you, well, well, verse 19, but when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour when you should speak. That is simply saying God's going to speak to us. Scripture says the Father will give you what to say. Another gospel says the Spirit will give you what you need to say. Basically saying that when you're yielded to the shepherd, the shepherd's going to see that you have what you need to say when you need to say it. Amen. Verse 20, for it will not, uh, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father will speak in you. Verse 21, isn't it sweet to know God will speak through us? Come on. Isn't that something, amen? I mean, you know you, I know me, we know one another. Isn't it wonderful to know that in, in spite of us, God will, because of his work of grace, get inside of us and then communicate out of us. Amen? Amen. Brother will deliver up brother to death. And father, his his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated. You'll be hated 
by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Now your enduring doesn't save you. It is the manifestation of your salvation of grace. That God has done this work in you. Verse 23. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they persecuted Jesus, what are they going to do to his disciples? Yes, verse 25, it is enough. And boy, what a phrase to bracket there. It is enough. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebub, which was a term referred to Satan, how much more would they call those of his household? Mm. Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. But just that we, we don't have time to get into all these things tonight but verse 25 it is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master it is enough we can we can say it in another term nothing else is enough nothing else is enough but it's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher the goal of a disciple is not perfection remember that A goal of a disciple is not perfection. The goal of a disciple is not praise. The goal of a disciple is not power. The goal of a disciple is not prestige. The goal of a disciple is not purchasing power. The goal of a disciple is not peace. The goal of the disciple is not people. The goal of the disciple is not problems. The goal of the disciple is not pleasantness, nor is it privacy, nor is it publicity, nor is it places, nor is it being practical, nor is it plans. It's not power. It's not productivity. The goal of a disciple is a person, is a person. It's a person. It's his master. It's his Lord his savior it's jesus is the goal of the disciple amen Amen. that's the disciple's goal i gave you a couple well not a couple but i gave you a a sheet here tonight we i passed these out before it's been a few years ago Uh, you got to keep in mind that the idea of what a disciple is predates this time here so when jesus spoke of a disciple he knew all his people understood what a disciple was in the sense that is that they had been disciples of other people for many years. John had disciples. Other teachers had disciples. And a disciple was a learner or a follower who would invest their life into a particular person so that they could be like that person they wanted to know what that person knew they wanted to live how that person lived they wanted to think like that person think 
They want it to just be consumed with the person. That's why it's referred to as a disciple. And that's really the idea of what Jesus came to make. He came to make what? Disciples. That's what the scriptures teach. That's what we're seeing right now as we're reading through these gospels. And, I, and I'm going to give you what, what is known of the laws of the disciple. You could refer to it as discipleship, but these are, these are laws of, or principles of the disciple. Principle number one, if you want, if you don't like the word law, just use the word principle because it's a principle. And the principle is a, is a role, is a rule. It's a way a thing works. So principle number one, there must be a willing teacher or master. You cannot have a disciple if you don't have a teacher. The teacher has to be willing to pour their life into somebody. And I want to tell you, Jesus is willing. We talked about that leper when he said, if you're willing, and Jesus said, I'm willing, be cleansed. Well, I want to tell you, Jesus said the same thing. If you're willing to teach me, Jesus said, I'm willing. I'm willing to teach you. That's what he came to do, to bear witness to the truth. Amen. A teacher willing to invest his life and love into a follower. Principle number two, there must be a submissive pupil slash follower, a student willing to give up his life to learn and live the way of his master. Most disciples in that day would leave their family, they would leave their lands wherever they were at to come get under the tutelage of a particular person whether it be a professor in some university, whether it be some artisan or whatever it was, they would come and they would stay in that area. They would get around them, live among them, walk with them. And what they did as the teacher, the student did. And they would follow that teacher. The teacher would put them through uh, some very difficult things to uh, validate their willingness to do what the teacher asked them to do. That That's just, if you wasn't willing to do what the teacher wanted you to do, you couldn't be a disciple. It's a difference between Miss Briggs, who teaches uh, a class, and she has students. Uh, there's a difference between just being a student and a disciple. One who says, I want to be like Miss Briggs. I want to know what she knows. I want to teach what she teaches. I want to live how she lives. And I will invest my life to learn that. Now, for that to happen, Miss Briggs has to be willing to let them into her life. That is, she got to know how they, how she treats Greg, how she treats Carolyn, how she functions every day, how she comes to fellowship. And they would spend their life around you, learning from you, and doing what you ever asked them to do so that they can know you and then live out what you know. And Jesus said that a disciple, it's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher. Got to have a submissive pupil or father. Remember that word submissive. Remember the word submit. What does it mean? It means to be under an assignment. The word mission is an assignment, orders. The word sub means under. So it means to be under an assignment, under orders, under orders. Scripture is clear that we are to be submissive to one another, that we're to be submissive to the Lord, that we're to come under orders. 
from what God has for us. Principle number three, there must be a personal relationship, a connection that relates emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. All these things are applicable for uh, the, the principles of the disciple. Principle number four, there must be a common nature. Now, this is where the disciples of Jesus and the disciple of somebody else is distinguishedly separated and different because all other teacher-master relationships, they had common natures and what they desired and wanted out of things, but something had to happen with us to have our nature change. That's what the Bible refers to being made a new creature in Christ, to being born again like-minded in nature with a desire to invest into one another. The disciples of Jesus had to be born again. They had to be born from above. Remember, we talked about it Sunday. We can change our behaviors, but we can't change our natures. Only God can change our nature. And our nature in being born again comes in tune with the nature of Jesus, with the nature of God. And he comes and lives within us. Principle number five. There must be clear communication. This comes through an intimate knowledge of each other's purpose. You got to be able to communicate if you're going to have a teacher, pupil, disciple, follower. You got to be able to communicate with one another. And as communication has got to be clear and it's got to be intimate. Very similar to how we see in Matthew 11 when Jesus said, look, all you that are weary and heavy laden and burdened, come unto me. That's that intimacy, and I'll give you what? Not rest from what I'm calling you to do, but rest in what I'm calling you to do. That rest is not found in rest, it's found in a what? In him, in the person. He says, come and take upon a yoke. What is a yoke for? He said, I'm going to put a burden on you. Right? Isn't a yoke a burden? It's a burden. Because you're yoked with something else. But he said, if you come yoked to my burden, I'll give you rest in the burden. Because my yoke is what? Light. My yoke is easy. But you got to, you learn from him. See, we're talking about an intimacy in discipleship. We don't yoke oxen like they would in that day uh, or mules like they did. You get on a tractor today and you'll get a, uh, 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 a hitch and you'll, you'll put your, your plow to it or you'll put your bush hog to it uh, and it'll make your work light. It'll make your work a little, a little easier than swinging a blade. Are you with me? Well, when you yoke to Jesus, you're still yoking to a burden because Jesus has a burden. But his burden is a blessing. And when you yoke to him, you're learning from him and that's that intimate clear communication that must take place. Principle number six, there must be life-altering instruction. The communication is going to be instruction. This instruction is going to influence. It's going to inspire. It's going to guide. It's truth that's going to set us free. Jesus said that his disciples, what? Continue in his word. They continue in his word. He said, how do you know you're my disciples? John 8, you continue in my instruction. You continue in my insight. You continue under my influence. You continue in that. And that's what separates a disciple from somebody who just wants to be. You see, a wannabe says, I'd like to be like Brother Shannon, but I'm not willing to invest that kind of 
time or effort or interest in brother. I like him. I like things about him, but I ain't willing to, to, to give up everything to live life like him. Well, you see, Jesus said his disciples continue in his insight. Amen. They continue in his message. They continue in his word. And that's how you can tell the difference between those that or follow from a distance and those that continue. And we're talking about a specific doctrine in the world we live in when it comes to disciples. We're talking about a philosophy, but not, we're not talking about a philosophy with Jesus. We're talking about truth, teaching, truth believed in, the aims of life. And then seven, principle number seven, there must be lifestyle affirmation and allegiance. A disciple is not above his teacher, but a disciple has the deepest of longings. It's enough for them to be like their teacher. That's that affirmation. Amen. They want to be like him. And to God be the glory. Amen. Amen. That's why I have a verse on here. We've talked about this one in the past on quite a bit of occasions. Where if anyone does not love the Lord, that is the idea of liking the Lord. That's that phileo word love to have an affection for the Lord Jesus. Uh, Paul said, let that same man still be accursed. They still are condemned in their sins. If Jesus is not characteristically and historically the object of our affection, our adoration, and our applause, we are not his at all because Jesus came to make us his disciple. And that takes place when he bursts us into the kingdom. Then we become those willing, uh, submissive students and he becomes that willing teacher that says, come, follow me and I'll make you what? Fishers of men. men. Amen. Amen. So y'all can keep those and, and share them. We live in a society that loves using that term Christian, but has really no clue of what a disciple Amen. or what Jesus came to make. And, and we want to help them. Amen. We want to help them not to settle for terminology that doesn't have any affirmation or allegiance to it. And that a true disciple is, is, their goal is the person, Amen. the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times have you heard me say it before? Plans don't save people. God's plan is the best plan, but it ain't his plan that saves them. Who saves them? Jesus. Jesus saves the person. We follow a person. Amen. Amen. A person. A person. And not a prayer. Not walking an aisle. Not standing before a congregation, not getting into a baptismal, rivers or waters or tanks or whatever. None of that, none of that saves. There's only one exclusive way that God has set aside that he calls a narrow way that saves. And that's his son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Only he saves. And boy, when he saves, he saves to the uttermost. He forever saves. And there is distinct marks upon those disciples' life that identifies them as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, as disciples. And the world around us will call us Christians because we identify with Jesus. Amen. Amen. 
Father, we thank you. We bless you. We ask you to help us with, with these principles, these truths, your message. We want to uh, go proclaim it. We want to see it affect our daily walk and lives, that we would encourage one another, that we would be harmless as does. We would be uh, gentle and that we would be non-threatening and that we would deliver a message that can see people transformed and changed and we would be keen and insightful and as wise as a serpent of knowing when to say when to say something and how to say it and why we are communicating what we communicate and knowing that you are at work in us and speaking through us so we just going to praise you and thank you for it help us in these days our eyes are fixed upon you in Jesus name amen love y'all y'all have a good night